come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to lead us in our study as we're looking at this uh, chapter in Ezekiel. We pray for the, this lady who got injured on the ATV, that you will be with her and her family and that you will touch her body and bring, bring about your will in, in that life. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ezekiel chapter 20. We're going to start at verse. We're going to start at verse nine, even though we did that last week, just to get the context of where we've been. But I wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted before the heathen, among whom you were, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the, into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, that which if a man do, he shall even live by in them. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if any man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then said I, I will pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. But I wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. So we're going to take a look at this. Before this, we were talking about how they worshipped idols and were participating in, in uh, wrong, wrong life. And, in, and um, he says in verse 10, I caused them to come out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And this causing, if you remember, it's referring to the ten plagues on, on Egypt, where God defeated all the various gods of Egypt that, they, that the Egyptians worshipped. And then as they crossed the Red Sea, he destroyed Pharaoh and his army because Pharaoh's hard heart pursued them. And it says, you know, he caused them to go forth. I just want to think about this. How often does God cause things to happen in our life? Probably more than we're even aware of. You know, if you think about it, there's times in your life when you know that he's caused things because you just look back and you say, I really didn't want to do this, but this happened due to whatever circumstances pushed you into it. And I know that as I look at my life, there's many times when I know that God has caused things to happen in my life. And we know what he does in scripture. He causes things to happen. He called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldeans and then caused him to leave Haran and caused him to win battles that made no sense. He took 300 men and defeated three, three, different, uh, you know, three different kings that had just beat two other kings. You know. So it's an amazing thing to watch God. He caused, caused Esau to have favor on his brother. And that is an amazing, if you think about it, the miraculous part of that, you know, he's, his brother stole the birthrights you know, from him and stole the blessing from them, and he's ready to kill his brother, and he comes out with uh, this huge army to his brother and, you know, to escort him back in, and he blesses, and they blesses him, says, keep all these gifts, I don't need anything. You know, I've gotten rich on my own. And so we see that God caused his brother to be kind to him. God caused Joseph to end up into slavery and to and rescue his people. We think about all the things God causes to, to happen in our life. And we just talked about Sunday, how God puts it in our heart to do things and then gives us the strength to do it. And it's all him. And it's pretty amazing when we think about how much control God has in this world. And even as I say that, I want to be very careful because I'm not a pre- uh, predispensationist, you know, or, or predestinist that says you have no choice in, in any of your life, but God is the one who does things. And how, the, you know, how he manages to get his way and we get our, you know, we have anything in free will is a very interesting question. But here it says God caused them to be taken out. Caused them to be taken out. And then it says in verse 11, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if any man do, he shall live in them. And this is all the laws that God gave them. Gave them the Ten Commandments plus another 603 laws. That's what the Jews tell us. There's 613 laws. And I have never counted them, but I, I'm going to trust that the Jews have done a good job counting the laws and that it is 613 laws. Uh, I, won't, I won't quibble with their number. 
If they say there's 613, I will believe it, especially when they've written many books on, on the laws and how to keep the laws. <laughs> so, but God gave them all kinds of laws on how to live his lifestyle. He gave them these rules, and he says, if you live by them, they bring blessing. And this is one of the things we say about the law. Keeping the law is not going to get us into heaven, but there's great blessing in following God's laws. All right, they don't get us to heaven. They don't make God love us more or be, even be more pleased with us. They just bring blessings because there's the law of sowing and reaping. You sow good seed. It makes your life easier. You're not having to be defensive. You're not having to worry about people, you know, uh, using, hanging something over your head and, and manipulating the, you. Uh, there's all these good things and you sow good seed and good comes back. You sow bad seed and you get the consequences of sowing bad seed. So it's not that the law is bad. We, we never want to leave people with the conclusion that the law is bad. The law is good. It, unfortunately though, it does tell us how bad we are because we look at the law and say, we can't keep it. And as we get ready to do the evangelism, the way of the master, their biggest step is to show people that they cannot keep the law. And you work your way through several of the Ten Commandments and show people that you are a sinner. You have broken God's standards. And by showing them that they are, are a sinner and they've broken God's standards, you hopefully can then bring them to the fact that Jesus Christ has paid their debt. And so we see this. And it says, I have given you this, these laws. Verse 12 says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. And this is one of those things, if you've ever talked to somebody and they will tell you all about how you've got to keep the Sabbath day and you can't work on the Sabbath day and all of this, this is one of those verses that is good. And it's mentioned six or seven times in the scripture. The Sabbath day was a sign between Israel and God. Okay, it's very clearly taught in the scriptures. The principle of a Sabbath day is very important for us. If we look at it, we need a day of rest. If anybody ever tries to go full out seven days a week, they will burn themselves out very quickly. And if you've ever tried to do it, you were a workaholic, you tried to do it, you can only do it so long before your body says, I've had enough and you end up either getting sick or going to a nervous breakdown. Something will happen and your body will shut down. And usually it is some form of sickness saying, I just quit, you're going you're gonna to rest for a while. And so it happens. And even before you get to that point, you start emotionally and, and getting upset with people. I remember when I tried to do it for a long period of time, I worked for nine straight months without a day off. And I started getting short with people and, and you know, snapping at them. And I became a very bad manager after a while because I was just so tired and so irrit irritated that nobody wanted to be around me. And I ended up having to take time off. And we, this is a principle God has put into place. We need to have a day of rest. And the psychologists call it margin. You, you have to have time when you just get yourself back together mentally. Now they won't tell you you need one every seven days like God has said, but, but I've watched people. I've watched people over the years, especially pastors, because pastors work a hard, really hard a lot of times and, and they don't like to take days off. And then if they do take a day off, they're usually so busy doing all the stuff at home and the stuff that they haven't done for, for the week that they're really not taking a day off. And this is important for us to be able to take time off. And when I was running the deacons in the previous church, I go, our job is to make sure that the pastor gets his day off. And if there's somebody that needs to be seen at the hospital or the prison, we make sure he gets his day off and we, we take care of it. And it was very important because this pastor was one that would want to work all the time and he's, because he enjoyed it. And there is this place where pastors are enjoying their work so they want to work. And when God gave the day of rest to Adam and Eve, I love the way that uh, Bill Tackett talked about it in The Truth Project. He said, you need to rest one day and quit having so much fun. Can you imagine how much fun it would have been to work in a perfect garden? You know, your, your work was more like play. 
I think this tree belongs over here. It'll make it really, it'll improve this view a little bit by putting a tree here. Uh, the garden should go right here. You know, it was another weeds. It was all just fun things for them to do. Have you ever been in a place where you're having so much fun you had to take time off because you were really having too much fun even though you know, it was uh, some work and you needed to settle your mind and just say, stop thinking for a while. You know, stop, stop stressing so hard, huh? I've had a number of jobs that I've enjoyed. I've had a number of jobs that I have enjoyed so much that I have to purposely take time away. I've been blessed. Because I've, I've always had the attitude, if I don't enjoy the job, I'm not in the right job. And so I've been willing to make the sacrifices sometimes to enjoy my job. But these Sabbaths were for, for them and God. And, we, and you note that he put in Sabbaths. He's not just referring to Saturday. And Saturday, just in case anybody has any questions, Saturday is Sabbath, okay? It's not, there's <laughs> no question about that. It's, that is the seventh day that's all, when God talks to the Jewish people about it, that's what he's referring to. But he's also talking about Passover, Yom Kippur, uh, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. All of these events that they had on these big feast days were Sabbath days. And this is, you know, goes into the whole thing where I don't believe Jesus died on a Friday because of Passover being a Sabbath. And they, but we see that God says they've greatly polluted my Sabbaths. And we see all through Israel's history, they worshiped false gods, and many times they did not keep the Sabbath. If you, read, if you remember the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah both got mad at the people because they did not keep the Sabbath day holy, and they let people come in and sell on the, on the Sabbath in the city. And they go, this is going to stop. <laughs> can't remember which of the two, but he literally locked the gates of Jerusalem on Friday night at sunset and didn't open them again until the sunset on Saturday because he's going, we are going to keep the Sabbath, and he, and he kept the markets closed. Here we see that Jesus says, you know, the God is saying, you polluted them. But in this case, it was very much. I mean, it's not just the priest offering sacrifices that are polluting. This is people offering sacrifices to idols and going in and working and harvesting their fields and, and all the stuff that goes along with it. Here we see God saying, you have polluted my day. I gave it to you as a sign. Now, mostly Jews are well known for keeping the Sabbath. I mean, they've been known for keeping the Sabbath all, all through their history overall and as they were in the diaspora they went all over and they kept their the sabbath for the most part that was one thing that kept them as jews they did no work on saturday in an environment that worked seven days a week and they would take a day off every single week and people thought they were lazy because of it but they were obeying god somewhat <laughs> at least in that one day but then he goes, you've made me angry. He goes, he says, I am the Lord that sanctifies you. The idea of sanctification, to be made holy, to be made righteous. Now, for us as Christians, when we get saved, God gives us what he calls justification. He declares us perfect from the court of heaven and says that we're perfect. We know we're not perfect, we, we, aren't, we aren't perfect, but he spends the rest of our life sanctifying us and making us who he says we are. He starts working on making us perfect. Now, we won't be perfect until we die, and then he glorifies us and makes us what he says we are. And this is the three parts of salvation that, I want to, that I'm going to bring out. There's three distinct parts of salvation. There's the justification of God saying you're perfect. That's how he sees us from the moment you accept the gift of Christ as your savior. He then spends your lifetime making you who he says he is, who he says you are. And that's sanctification. That's when we're working out our salvation. We're learning to, to do the right things over time. And that's when we look at our life and say, okay, I used to do these things and I don't do these things anymore. Now, still working on these other areas, but <laughs> I've got victory in this area of my life. And then the last step is when we die and we step out of this body into the presence of God, he glorifies us and makes us perfect, however, however big that step has to be. So this is very important. When you're reading verses about 
salvation, you have to keep in mind, is God talking about our judicial position, who we are in our day-to-day walk being sanctified, or our final position in, in glorification? And those who will talk about the, the idea that you can lose your salvation almost always are talking about things that happen in the sanctification point where we're learning to be made perfect. And they're, they ignore the justification or the glorification. Or if they, there's a, there are certain groups out there that say you're perfect and you shouldn't sin. They have a real hard time with this sanctification stage. They go, you're justified, you're perfect, and you're going to be perfect, so you, you're supposed to be perfect. And if you sin, you've lost your salvation in their mind. Because if you were absolutely righteous, you, you wouldn't have sinned, and you obviously aren't, aren't saved because you sinned. And they get into all kinds of, and they, they lose their salvation all the time and have to get resaved all the time because you know, they, they mix up the three parts of salvation. So we want to keep this in mind, and God says, I'm the one that sanctifies you. And it was amazing when you go through the Old Testament and watch when God steps in and turns their heart to him. Uh, book of Judges is a great book. It says the people did what was right in their eyes and God judged them. And, and they finally got tired of it. They, they prayed to God and he brought in a judge to bring them back to God. And then they would become righteous for a short period of time and then they'd start doing what was right in their own eyes and they'd be judged again. And the sad thing is we do the same thing ourselves all the time and we're not generation like they were, generation to generation. And then verse 14 says what this verse says quite often, but I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be, pol- be polluted among the heathen in whom sight I brought them out. This is a refrain that keeps being brought up in this chapter. I brought them, I did the work for my name's sake, God said. My reputation is what God is saying. I kept it because of my reputation, not anything that they did. But because of my reputation, I wasn't going to have it drug and polluted by in, in front of the heathen, so I kept my word. Now, God didn't have to keep his word during most of this because he had already promised. And think about this. We've been talking in Deuteronomy. God has put a blessing and a curse. He goes, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed, and all of the curses that fell on Egypt will fall upon you. And God's saying, I brought them out of Egypt, and I kept them. I kept them because I did not want my reputation being drugged through the mud. Oh, how much grace God gives us and how much mercy he gives us because of his name's sake. Because he doesn't want us to be be shown as weak and show that he could not accomplish what he started, the work that he starts. God does the work in us and he is the one that's going to complete the work. And Paul tells us that, that God who began a work in you shall complete it in, in the day of judgment. God is going to complete the work eventually. Even if we're having to be glorified to do it, he's going to complete the work. <laughs> when we step into heaven, we will be perfect, which is what God declares us to be in the first place. And we see that. Verse 15, Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness, that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgment and walked not in, the statu- in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after I- their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destroying them, neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk you not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile their- yourself with idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And hallow my Sabbaths, and, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Nevertheless, uh, not, notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes to keep my judgments, to do them, which if a man shall do them, he shall live. They polluted it, my Sabbaths, and they said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and wrought my and wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them forth. So he continues, he goes, even though they disobeyed and I didn't destroy them, there was a consequence. And we know that consequence. They wouldn't enter into the, into the promised land. They say, no, we can't go in there because these people in this land will kill our children. And God says, okay, fine. You get to wander in the desert and your children and your children will go in who you were afraid were going to die, but you won't. 
everybody who came out of Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. Uh, anyway, I'll put, let's take that back. Anybody 18 and over <laughs> died in the wilderness, that left Egypt, died in the wilderness and did not enter. Right, the whole generation had to die in that 40 years because of their disobedience. And this is one of the things that's, well, you said they weren't going to go in no matter what. And you remember in there, they tried, to, they, they decided they, many times, they said, well, we're going to go in. We disobey God, but we're going to go in. And many thousands died because they disobeyed God. And Moses said, don't do it. And God said, you're not going in, you're not going in. They were not going in because of their disobedience. So they didn't really have grace in that They had lots of grace. They weren't destroyed. They weren't destroyed immediately. The thing we have to always remember is when we do not do what God says, there are consequences, always. Sometimes there are severe consequences. Sometimes they are not so severe consequences. The attitude of the people were, we're not going in. We don't trust you. You're not going to give us this land. So God said, fine, you're not going in. And because you're worried that your children are going to die, you will die and your children will take the land that you were supposed to take. The idea of somebody like Joseph. Joseph kept, pretty much was a braggart. You know, he was telling his brothers about his dreams and everything and make pretty high on himself and God needed to humble him and put him into Egypt. So there was a consequence for his pride. There's always consequences for what we do. Period, it's just the way it is. God puts consequences out there. So had to happen, Joseph, to give him the turnaround? Well, God always uses it. Now, could God have put him in there some other way? Absolutely, God could have put him in there some other way without, without the humility, but he was one who needed to be humbled because of the things his father had done. His father helped build a lot of pride in him. Gave him a special coat, made him the number one son, even though, even though he was number 11 in the family. Not necessarily, well, it depends. We're responsible for our own decisions and our own, and our own thoughts. If we want to look at the psychology side of things and say from the psychology, no, it wasn't his fault, his dad, his dad caused it and his, brother, his brothers caused it. You know. But we have to always remember, from God's point of view, we are all responsible for our own actions, no matter what circumstances helped bring us into those circumstances. And because God is not going to accept, well, you know, I have this, uh, you know, pride problem because, you know, <laughs> Or I have this anger problem because God's not going to accept uses. I was insecure because my parents never loved me and <laughs> threw me in a closet when I misbehaved. God is not going to take any of these excuses. The world takes excuses. But God is going to say, you made your choices. And this is important for us. And this is some of the counseling I give to parents who go, well, you know, I've made some really bad decisions with my kids. Did you try to do the best you could? Well, yeah, I, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I made lots of mistakes with my kids, and I had to go through that whole process of how bad a father was I, and, you know, and, and I made a lot of mistakes. Believe me, I made a lot of mistakes, especially with the oldest one. <laughs> you know, made lots of mistakes. But God still has done his work with them, and the people are responsible for their own actions. And we've got to be careful that we don't try to shunt them off. And here God says these people rejected him. They died in the wilderness. There was a consequence for their sin. And this is something I try to share with everybody. Every time you disobey God, you may have lots of good reasons. Well, God, you know, I'm walking in my own way of thinking, and I think this is the best thing. Even though you say it's not, I think it's the best thing that can happen. And God's going to say, okay, you keep doing it. I will work everything out for good, but there will be consequences and you will suffer for violating God's word. Yeah. And I've heard, I've heard the excuses all my life, you know, and made some of them myself. Well, I just can't do this because, and they'll give you 101 reasons and you go, well, this is what the Bible says. Well, I'm just going to do what I want. Here's my reasons why it doesn't apply to me. And okay, well, have fun with your consequences. Been there, done that myself, obviously. I know because I've been there. I've, seen, I've done it. I've made the excuses to God why his word does not apply to me at that time and suffered the consequences. Sometimes they're really hard consequences. Sometimes they're not. You know, it's not a huge deal sometimes. Sometimes it's a big deal. But God will bring out. And usually when we're violating God's word, we think we're justified. When I was working nine months straight, I was feeling I was totally justified. I had no choice. I had to do it. I should have followed God's word and I probably wouldn't have been as grumpy at the end of nine months and, 
and, and tired. If I had just obeyed God's word and he would have done the blessings to fill in. But you know, we get very in our own mind and we start giving us reasons why we can't obey God's word. You know, I just can't do it because. And we put together a whole list of reasons why we can't do it. I don't have enough staff to, to take a day off. I don't have the right people to take a day off. The whole world's going to fall apart if I take a day off. You know, it's, most managers think that way. If I take a day off, it, the, the whole store, the whole world's going to fall apart if I take a day off. Uh, and God's saying there was a consequence. He didn't curse them. He didn't destroy them. But he says, you're going to have a consequence. You're going to wander around this desert until all of your, all of your uh, people are dead and your children take over. And then he says, he encouraged the children to walk in his statutes and don't walk, don't walk like your parents did. And keep my Sabbaths, don't defile them, because I am the Lord your God, walk in the statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Then he says, and hallow my Sabbaths, they are a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You know the greatest thing about being obedient to God's rules is when you watch how God makes everything work. You know, especially when you do it and it makes no sense. And you go, God, I'm just going to be obedient. I don't see how this is going to be. I don't know how you're going to make this work. And you just walk in it. And God makes it work. God makes everything work out. You take that day off and everything goes smooth on the day that you take off. You know, you, 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 you uh, honor him with your tithes and offering. And you, want, and you watch him just bless the money that's left over. You... Tell the truth when it makes no sense to tell the truth and you're, and you're just sure that you're going to really get in trouble for telling the truth and you watch how God honors integrity. You know, you may still get in trouble, but at least he honors the integrity and there's rewards in it. You, you do the things that God says and you watch and you say, wow, look at the blessings that come by following his rules. And we do this over and over again and we just watch, you know, in many years I've watched God just be himself and stand up in defense and, and make things work out when you just are obedient. And I'm going to tell you, I got, I usually am very tired of having to go through consequences, so I'm getting better at being obedient because the consequences aren't any fun. <laughs> and then when you realize that, that you caused your own consequences to come upon you because you weren't obedient. And we just watch what happens. Now, does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us? Absolutely not. Job's a great example of somebody who was obedient to God and had bad things happen to them. There's been many people who have held on to God's standards. And we think about some of these business people who have had lost their businesses because they will stay true to what they believe God's telling them to be, be true to. And they lose their business. They lose their livelihood. It's going to come a time when we might even lose our freedoms and go to jail or worse for standing up for God's truth. We need to be ready for that. But even that will have its blessing because God's going to say, I'm going to do something good out of it. And we'll see good things come from it. When people have been martyred, God's kingdom is exalted because they go to their death and glory for him. And people get to hear about how good God is and how strong these people believe in God to be able to follow him. And we see this whole picture that God says, I'm yours. And he says, you know, but then he goes in verse 21, notwithstanding the children rebelled against me and walked not in my statutes. This is a pattern that keeps following. God blesses, he sets up, and then people fail. And again, we see this in the book of Judges. They start doing what's in, right in their own eyes. They get judged. They repent. They, get it, they come back. They, they go for a little while. They start doing what's in, right in their own eyes. And this is something that we want to be very careful of because we do the same thing so often. We do what's right in our own eyes and have to suffer consequences. Now, for most of us, it's not going into captivity in a foreign nation or all that stuff, but you know, there's consequences that are almost just as bad sometimes when our testimony is hanging on a, by, a, by just the tiniest bit because we've messed up so bad. And people are looking at us and saying, wow, what kind of Christian are you? And then you repent and God restores your, restores your testimony. And you know, the good news is when you repent, God restores that testimony. 
There's nothing in our life that God cannot use for his good. And some people have looked at Christians who have fallen flat on their face and repented and going, wow, they're coming right back. You know, they, there's something in this God that they're following that they can come back even after having totally disgraced themselves maybe. I mean, maybe totally disgraced themselves and fallen flat on their face. And they can still repent and God accepts them. And that touches people. Because they're so used to people rejecting them if they don't live up to the standard that they expect. And this is the hard thing for many people when they're walking with Christ and people are looking at them. Because we as Christians are supposed to love one another and help each other out. When somebody falls, we're to lift them up and try to help them get back up and not just say, well, you deserve what you got and kick them around a little bit while they're on the ground. No, we're to love them and pick them up. Now, they probably did deserve what they have, but that's beside the point. Our job is to pick each other up and to love and encourage, just as we want when we deserve what happens to us. God's grace is wonderful because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve the grace we get from other Christians because if we did, it wouldn't be grace. We are to show grace and love to one another and help one another get up and go continue with God. Not because they deserve it, because they don't, but because they need that extra help. And we see things like Peter who fell and denied Jesus. How would you have liked to have been Peter, denied Jesus, and he goes to the cross before you can even say, forgive me. And he is totally in a place where you know, he is depressed, most likely. The Savior, the one he's been following, is, has died. And then he gets the news, oh, he's resurrected. I don't think he wanted to be anywhere near Jesus yeah, at that point in time. At that point, he's going to go, he's going he's to give, he's, you know, there is probably a great fear. He's going he's to really go after me for having denied him, even though God had already told him he was going to deny him. But there had to be great fear, or at least sadness. You know, I never believed that he was coming back, and now here he is, but I denied him. Then you got somebody like Judas Iscariot who sells him into to the, to the Sanhedrin and instead of ever repenting, goes and hangs himself. Okay, he never repented. He did not understand the forgiveness of, of God even, much less Jesus, even though he'd seen it over and over and over again. He, he hung himself because he did not understand forgiveness in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Peter didn't fully understand forgiveness, but had seen enough of it that when, when he saw Jesus finally on the seashore that he jumped out of the boat to swim to Jesus and say, you know, forgive me for what I've done. Judas never even had, you know, never even took that opportunity. Judas, in the whole time he was with them, was a thief because they says, the scriptures tell us that he was a thief, that he, that he took the money out of the, out of the, the, the communal, community bag and spend it on himself. He was looking for the power and influence that being a disciple of the, of the Messiah was going to be, that he was looking for, trying to build his kingdom instead of building the king's kingdom. Uh, he was not a good person, he was not, and yet Jesus chose him and he was one of his 12 primary disciples, which goes to show us we need to be careful. One of the places you can get so hard-hearted, the easiest is by being in church. Because you can hear God's word over and over. You can hear his truth over and over again. And if you don't respond in the spirit, you can get a very hard heart. Oh, I've heard it so many times. And I believe me, I've heard this from kids especially, especially teenagers. Well, I've heard the stories a hundred times. Well, you don't believe them. Well, you know, I've been told this story since I was, you know, two years old in Sunday school. Can't you give us some new stories? Well, I'm sorry, we got the, we've got the Bible. That's all we've got to give you. Now, but you're still not applying. You're not understanding. You think you know every part of the story, but you're not applying what you, what you know. We just get hard-hearted because we hear the same things over and over. We can hear about the fact that we're supposed to love somebody so much, but if we don't put it into practice, then it's just so many words. And we go, okay, it's another message on love. It's another message on forgiveness. It's another message on tithing. It's another message on evangelism. And we just get to the place where we just get hard-hearted and just basically stop listening and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us. Judas Iscariot was one of those. 
But the disciples were pretty much that way before the, before the crucifixion. How many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to go to, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back. I'm going to die and I'm going to come back. You need me to die because your sins need to be forgiven. And yet they never understood what he was talking about because what they heard was filtered through what they thought they understood. We have to be very careful about that. Are we listening in the spirit and letting the spirit change our thinking? Or do we filter everything we hear through what we already believe? Now, if you have a good, solid biblical framework, that's not, not all that bad. But if you have a non-solid biblical framework or one that's really mixed with the world's point of view, that's not a good place to be. Because when you hear a message on, on loving one another, you go, well, they don't deserve it. Well, of course they don't deserve it. <laughs> That's what the Spirit tells us. You know, we've got to show them grace. And we'll hear, well, they don't deserve it. I'm not going to be nice to them. Uh, you hear a message on tithing. Well, I can't live on the 100%. There's no way I'm giving God 10% of my money. I can't live on the 100%. And God said, well, if you just be obedient, watch me work. Show these people love and watch me work. Show these people grace and watch me work. You know, show them kindness and watch me work. And we see this over and over again. God is saying, I am the one. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to do it. Why? For his name's sake. Even when we totally mess it all up, he will do the work for his name's sake. When we go out and evangelize and we get it all messed up and we, and we mess up the whole program, but we start giving them any part of the gossip, gospel, God will make it work for his namesake. We were obedient. He's going to say, oh, here we go. We're going to make it work. And it's fun to watch what God will do as he makes things happen and how he will protect them. And so, let's see, where did we leave off? Uh, he lifted up his hand with them also, that he would scatter them among the heathen. Nope. Verse 23. I lifted up my hand unto them also in the wilderness, that they would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my st statutes, and polluted my Sabbaths, and their, in, and their eyes were after their father's idols. Wherefore, I gave them also the statutes that were not good and judgments there whereby they should not live. I polluted them in their own gifts in that they caused to pass through the fire all that opened the womb that I might make them desolate to the end that they might know that I am the Lord that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus saith the Lord God, yet in this your fathers have blasphemed in that they committed trespass against me. For when I brought them into the land for which they lifted up my hand to give them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees, and they offered there their sacrifices. And there they presented the provocation of their offering. And also they made their sweet savor and poured out their drink offerings. Then said I unto them, What, are, what is the high place where you, whereunto you go? And the name therein is called Balma, a Bama, to this day. So God is telling them that they went out even when they got their land, he goes, you polluted the land. You polluted the land. You worshipped idols. And this is really hard to understand. He goes in verse, he goes, you did not execute my judgments in 24. You despised my statutes. You polluted my Sabbaths. And your eyes were after your father's idols. They followed their, they followed their, uh, their parents and their idol, idol worship. This is something that happens so frequently in families. Uh, we talk about a bad idea that's not really generational sins, but we learn bad behaviors from our parents. Or we can learn good behavior sometimes if, we're, if we come from a good, solid family that actually worships God. But how many times does somebody have a drinking problem and their kids end up with the same problem, usually worse? Okay, and their kids, are, if their kids don't break that cycle, their, their, their kids are going to be worse than they were. This happens over and over, whether it's drinking or drugs or lying or workaholism or just about anything, it gets worse on each progressive generation unless God comes in and breaks the cycle. 
Now it can also happen on the other direction that good, righteous living can happen where you see family after family, you know, generation after generation serving God. It's a little more rare because it's against our human nature, but we see it, you know, where the first family breaks the cycle, you know, first one and breaks some cycle and becomes really truly on fire for God. And it's going to take being on fire for God because you have to be worshiping God 24-7 for the cycle to truly be broken. Because we all know that what, what our kids are looking for is something that's real. Our teenagers in our day and age are looking for real Christianity. And when they see all the fake Christianity they see, they turn away from it and say it's not real. And it's hard to win them back, especially when the world is fighting so hard to, to take them away from Christianity as well. And they see their parents saying, okay, I'm going, we're going to church on Sunday, but then they don't live like a Christian the rest of the week. So the kids are saying, well, what is this Christian stuff? It's a, a Sunday show where they put on a mask in front of people and then they go to work and they lie and cheat just like everybody else does. And they tell lies and they don't, they don't honor God. They don't read their Bible. They don't do all these things. And we need to be able to live. When you get, a, when you get to somebody that they see a real Christian in their midst, it impresses them. They want something real. We have a great opportunity with teenagers right now. A great opportunity with teenagers if we will just show them real Christianity at, at work. Somebody who really believes in God's word and reads their Bible and prays and, and puts together what God says to do and lives it. This impresses the, our teenagers. And you know what? If a teenager gets on fire for God, you'll see great things happen in their life. I've seen many Christians and teenagers that are good, solid, on-fire Christians say, this is real. It is real. I've seen it real, and I believe it's real. They will evangelize. They will share with people, and they will stay out of the trouble that most teenagers get into because they see that God is real. The greatest blessing I have in my life is having seen my dad praying, reading the Bible, living out Christianity 24-7. Okay? It wasn't something that was just a Sunday event for him. He did it all the time. Did he do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But he was in his Bible. He would be reading it. He would answer questions by using, it, using the Bible for his, for his answer. He would, we went to church, and it wasn't just go to church because. It was we're going to church because we really want to. We would sing Christian songs. We had Bible studies at our house. You know, we had all this stuff going on, and it had an impact. Now, I got saved first, but it still had an impact on the way that I lived. My kids were raised with that same mentality. It's a 24-7. You know, this is what the Bible says. Let's, you know, Dad, what are you doing while I'm studying? <laughs> you know, Here, listen to, listen to what, you know, my kids got many of the messages long before anybody else did. They got, they got stuff that wasn't even going to be part of the message because I was studying. You know, it's... Yeah, but the key is, what are we showing to people in our life? Do they see some fake, non-real thing? Or are they seeing that we're trying to be the best Christian that we can be and lift God up? Are we in his word? How, would, how far do we go in his word? I've shared with you, I've, I've talked to lots of people, and I go, go visit their home, and we start talking about the Bible, and they go, well, let me find my Bible. And they have to go, to me, the idea of having to find your Bible is just kind of, a hard thing for me to fathom because I know where my Bible is. I use it so frequently, I know where my Bible is. And, you know, it's important, you know, but to be able to go days without reading your Bible, what is that saying? Well, it's not real. It's not, my spiritual, spiritual food is not that important. It's a very scary thought. And it's very troublesome to me as I'm going through this whole cycle of having two jobs now. Finding time to read is sometimes difficult. You know, sometimes it's very difficult to read and study. But I have to put it in. I know that I have to put it in. Some days I don't do it as well as I need to or I have very little short time because I have so little time to do. But it's so important. Because you've been polluted in, in verse 26. It goes, you polluted them in your gifts. I polluted them in their gifts, and they caused them to pass through the fire all that opened the womb, that they might make them desolate, and in the end that they might know that I am the Lord God. This idea of passing them through the fire. Many of the idol-worshiping involved the sacrifice of the children. Much of it. And 
This sounds very much like Dagon. Dagon, you put the, you, the idol would be heated up inside to red hot and you put the baby on the arms of the god and they would pull a switch to, to roll the baby down into the inner part of the idol to be, to be consumed. This is, it was horrendous. What was going on with these idols was horrendous. You know, to sacrifice your children. The, the gods of uh, businesses, oftentimes they would bury a baby in the cornerstone of a building as they sacrifice to the gods for their business. And they find these buildings all over the Middle East with the skeletons of young babies in the cornerstones of the buildings. You know, all of this stuff happened. But you know, we still do the same thing in our day as we worship our idols in America. We may not physically kill these children, but we're so busy with our idols that we ignore our children, so we basically are killing them. The workaholic who doesn't do anything with their family whatsoever because they're so busy earning a living. You know, when I was a workaholic, I always thought I was doing the best thing for my family. I was out there earning money, earning lots of money, I thought. Never saw my kids, <laughs> you know, but felt like I was doing everything I needed to do, doing the best that I could. My oldest son was in freshman in high school before I even realized where he was at because I'd worked so long and so hard to get someplace that didn't matter. And that's the sad thing about it. When I finally got there, it didn't matter. And I had to go back and try to make a relationship with my son. And that was hard to do. You know, imagine trying to re get a relationship with a you know, freshman in high school when you really haven't had one before that. Not that I totally ignored him. I mean, I know who he was, and we'd done some things, but not didn't know him the way I should have known my teenage son. We need to be very careful about all of these things and say, what idols are we lifting up and, and sacrifice? What are we sacrificing to these idols? What, what do we give up in the process? And how much are we willing to give up? Yeah. When we turn it over to God, God blesses it. And it's an amazing thing. When we worship God, we can bring our children right with us into that worship and let them grow. Let them see what happens. And it says, you know, that God let them keep making trespasses. And once they kept doing the trespasses, he just let them get increased on it. He just let them go deeper and deeper. Now, there is a point in time where God's going to say, okay, go ahead and live your way. You're not one of mine anymore. Go live your way. And then that's going to be a place where this world is all that they have to enjoy. And it's, there's an old saying that, you know, for those that are headed to hell, this world is as close to heaven as they're going to ever see. Now, this world isn't anything close to heaven. But when somebody goes into hell, they're going to be looking back at this world and saying, man, I wish I was back here. But for us as Christians who are going to heaven, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to get. And it's not hell. This, we'll look back and say, boy, I'm so glad to be out of that place and be here with God. But we want to be very careful because we must share the gospel message. The hell is going to be so bad that when people look at this miserable world, they're going to go, I want to go back. It was wonderful compared to what they're at. When Jesus told the story of Lazarus, uh, uh, the rich man in Lazarus, he goes, the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes and the torment that he saw, and he says, I just need a drop of water. And then he had some compassion for his family, go, God, uh, things are so bad here, go, go tell my brothers not to come here. You know, uh, and Jesus, you know, God told him, you know, or, or Abraham in this story, you know, you know, they have the law. They have the truth. You know, they need to listen. We'll not be without excuse for those who are sent into, into hell. And then it says, you know, you took your, your offerings, your drink offerings, and you offered them all to the idols. And verse 29 says, and he says, What is this high place whereunto you go? The name of it is Bamath, which literally means for worship. And the high places, and we've talked about what high places were, are, or were, and they were just about any hill. And even to this day, if you go into the Mediterranean or to 
the Middle East, the hills have temples on them to the false gods. It was the idea that the closer you get to heaven, the better place to put their temple because you are on your way up to where they were at, so you put it up on a high, high hill. And then they, you know, they would, you would uh, on the hills, on the, any place there were groves, and we've talked about groves they, where they would practice the fornication and everything. And then he says in verse 30, Wherefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, You are polluted after the manner of your fathers, and commit you whoredoms after their abominations. For, you, for when you offer your gifts, when you make your sons pass through the fire, you pollute yourselves and all your idols, even unto this day. And, I shall, and shall I be inquired of you, say, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord, I will not be inquired of you. And this takes us back to what we started this chapter. The people came to be inquire of God. They want to go, God, we want, we want to know what you want us to do. And God's saying, go to your idols. God has said that many times in the scriptures. They come to God and God says, uh, what have I to do with you? You're, you know, go, go talk to the idols that you've been, been following. And God can sometimes tell us that same thing. If we haven't been honoring him and we haven't repented, God will go, uh, go, talk, toward, go talk to your idols. Go simmer in your own juices. You made your bed, go lie in it for a while until you're ready to, to repent. Repentance is the absolute key. If we are ready to truly repent, turn from our sins to God, then he will hear us. But as long as we're trying to play a game and say, God, I want to I do everything wrong, but when I need you, <laughs> I'll come to you. God will say, go, go, go deal with what you've been doing wrong. You go deal with the idols that you've been following and see if they'll help you. You've been worshiping them, go, go worship them and uh, leave me alone. But when we come to God and we say, God, I repent. I am sorry for what I've done. I want to follow you. And we turn away. God is so merciful to bring us back to where, where, where he wants us and will do good things for us. But as long as we want to follow those idols, he says, see you later. See you later. And God knows when it's real. He knows when our repentance is real. He knows when the person who's asking Christ to come into their heart is, is given a real prayer. And the, one of the scariest scriptures you can ever read is when God says, when Jesus said, in that day many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? Didn't I go feed the poor? Didn't I go to the prison? Didn't I, get, didn't I clothe the naked? Didn't I do all these wonderful, great, godly works for you? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because they never put their heart in him. They put their heart and their trust in their works and never into the righteousness of Christ. And this is very important for us to understand. It's all about the righteousness of Christ through repentance, not through all the works that I think I'm doing for his, to, to get glory in his sight. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask that you go with us as we go about our business. We ask that you bless this rest of this day and the rest of this week and help us to see what you would have us to see and do. In your son's name, amen.